We come to the next chapter in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, if you want to turn there. John chapter 12. And what I want to try to focus on this morning is how this passage talks about the possibility of having true intimacy with God. Intimacy. I suspect that um, for some of you here, especially you guys, just saying the word intimacy leaves you feeling a bit uncomfortable, a bit icky, you know, kind of girlish. I mean, when you talk about intimacy, it feels a little bit too touchy-feely in nature. You're not comfortable with the whole idea. I mean, girls, yeah, but guys, you know, not so much. But the truth is that the Bible and God, our Maker, Creator, and our Father, when He describes His relationship with us, He uses terms that are very personal and intimate, even culminating it with saying that at the end of all time, we are going to be the bride of Christ. And that's a pretty intimate term. Now, for many people, the primary time, if not the only time, that you feel this sense of intimacy at all is during the singing portion of our worship. And the reason why I specify the singing time of our worship is because you do understand that's not all of your worship, right? You do understand that when you go to work on Monday morning and you do it with a heart unto the Lord, when you do laundry, if you're a mother, every day of the week, but you do it with a heart as unto the Lord, you realize that's as much worship as you singing to God, right? He says, whatever is in your hand, do it heartily as unto the Lord. But the truth is that for many of us, if not most of us, the time in which we feel most aware of the presence of God, most sensitive, most intimate with God, is while we're singing our worship to Him. And rather than make people feel bad by saying you're, you're lower than what you should be on the totem pole of spirituality because you're not as aware of His presence all the time, what we try to do is we try hard to make sure that our singing part of our service, like this morning, gives each person an opportunity to encounter God, to meet with God in a deep way. In fact, for most of us, if not all of us, when we're in the time of singing our worship to God is often the time that we become most aware of Him. We put our focus off of ourselves and off of our stuff and on to God. So I can remember, though, coming out of a uh, traditional church service. And this was, uh, there, there's no exaggeration to say that in this service, we would sing three hymns, and that would be it. Every Sunday, three hymns. And we never sang the whole hymn. We'd always sing verse 1, verse 2, and the last verse. I don't know what was wrong with verse 3, but we didn't sing verse 3. Uh, I think maybe somebody made a mistake when they wrote the hymns. They should have only ever had three verses. But we would sing three hymns, you would stand there stiff, and if you ever, and this is the truth, if you got out of hand at all, like you decided to just raise your hands like this, a deacon would come down the row and he would tap you and say, get it under control. And when I came out of that kind of service, that kind of understanding of God and of singing to God, and I came into a service much like our service today, I can remember, I still can remember, it was at Elam, I can remember being in that service and there were people with hands not just like, you know, like this, you know, where it's kind of safe and if people aren't watching, they wouldn't know you have your hands raised. It's really, it's kind of like, you know, it's down. They weren't like that. They were like that. And people were kneeling before God. People were prostrate in the presence of God. I can remember looking over at one person who was weeping while they were singing. I'm thinking, what's wrong with them? It was a little bit unsettling to come into a service like this. And I can remember my initial reaction was to kind of step back and assess. To look at everybody. To look at what they were doing. Even, and I'm ashamed to say it, even to judge a little bit. Just to think, 
You know, you're kind of making a spectacle of yourself over that, Dell. Could you get yourself under control? We need a deacon, please. But I can still remember uh, 1976. Uh, I went home for my first break from Elam. Elam was, that first little bit was tough for me because their worship was so different than I was accustomed to. It was wild. It was out of control as far as I was concerned. And uh, I went home and we went back to our old service. And it felt so blah. No life, no energy. And I thought, what's the deal? That's weird. I always used to like our worship services. But we came back to Elam and in the middle of that service, I can remember, I, I actually gave testimony about it later, uh, like another chapel or two later. In that service, in chapel on that Tuesday morning, I became so aware of God's presence. It was like, probably for the first time in my life, it was less about knowledge of God, less about fear of God, and more about the fact that, oh my God, and I mean that literally, God's here. He's right in front of me. And in that moment, I made a decision. I made the decision that I don't care what anybody thinks and I don't care what I look like. I'm going after God. And I did. And I've done that ever since. But I understand what it's like to come out of a different kind of a background and this kind of service can be different. I understand what it feels like to be a guy and to feel like this just doesn't seem natural to me. But one of the things I learned when I took up golf is that golf is not natural to anybody. Golf is weird. It's counterintuitive. And you have to do what feels unnatural until it becomes natural. And you don't think about it anymore. What I want to talk to you this morning is uh, about the possibility that maybe God would like to take you into a deeper place of intimacy, of relationship with Him than you've ever known before. Is that possible? Would that be something you might even want to go deeper in God? Uh, and I want to I give this warning, though. This is kind of like, you know, on the side of cigarettes, they now give a warning. When I was a kid, there was no warning. And then they put on a warning that says, this might cause cancer. Now they say, don't smoke this, this cause cancer. I want to give you a warning just like that. This is not a warning of what might happen. This is a warning of what will happen. If you ever encounter the true and the living God, and you find yourself lost in Him in worshipful intimacy, you will never be satisfied with anything less. Okay, I'm, just, I'm warning you now. So if you don't want to go there, don't go there. Because once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, there's no other taste that's going to satisfy you anymore. And so that's kind of what I feel to do. We're, we're in John chapter 12. Are you there? Turn there. While you're turning, John chapter 12. If you have your real Bibles, open them. If you don't, if you have a fake Bible on your phone, go ahead and open that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I want to remind you that the Bible is a book of stories. Think about it. Think about when you think about the Bible. If you were to tell me the story of the Bible... Would you not associate the Bible with all of the characters of the Bible and their stories about their lives? Whether you go back to Adam and Eve or Cain and Abel or Noah and his three sons or Abraham. They're stories of people's lives. They're stories of people who encountered God. And here's what I want you to get. What God did for them, He can do for you. That's what these stories are. These stories are a down payment, a promise. It's God giving you a guarantee. If I can do it for Abraham, I can do it for you. If I did it for David, I can do it for you. So as we read the story of these characters today, I want you to take it very personally. I don't want you even to say, Pastor Chris is preaching at me. I want you to say, this story is my life. This is what I'm longing for. So John chapter 12, let's read verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, and by the way, we're talking about the last Passover that Jesus would ever celebrate. This is the biggest event on the Jewish calendar. 
It's where they celebrated the fact that God had saved them. He had delivered them. He had redeemed them from the Egyptians through the blood of the Lamb. Jesus, six days before he was to become the Lamb who would lay his life down, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead. We looked at that in the last chapter. Whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper and Martha served. Take note of that. And Martha served. Keep that in your mind, okay? Because we're going to talk about that in a minute. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary. Now who was Mary? Because you remember from the last chapter who she is. Who was Mary? Martha's sister. Good. Martha and Lazarus' sister. Probably their younger sister, although some people suggest that Lazarus was the baby of the family. We're not sure. But we do know that Martha was probably the oldest, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. Now, some commentators believe that this was the kind of oil that was used in preparing a body for burial. And they relate that back to what Jesus says in verse 7, which we'll get to in a second. So this oil very likely was oil that had been saved, maybe even handed down, purchased expensive oil in order to prepare her own body when it was time for her death, her burial. She had made preparations ahead of time, in other words. She takes a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet, not the head. Many times in Jewish homes, when you would come in as a visitor, they would anoint your head. But here, she even went lower than that. She didn't even dare to go to the head. She went to the feet. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of her worship. Uh, No, I'm sorry. What is it? The house, what? No, it it says the house was filled with the fragrance of? Of the oil. But what she did as an act of worship affected the aroma all through the place. Keep that in mind for yourself, okay? All of this is your story. You're Mary in this story. You're Martha. You're Lazarus. You're coming near to Jesus, and what you do affects the atmosphere around you. But one of his disciples, there's always one, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, And notice the tag that's always attached to his name. One of two tags. And in this particular section, both tags are there. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him. That's how he was known. He who would betray him. Said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said. Get this. This he said. Not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. That's the other tag. Judas always was the guy who had his hand in the till. He was always taking. He was always stealing. He always carried the money for the disciples. And he used to take what was put into it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. So what she had intended for her burial, she gave to Jesus. For the poor you have with you always, but me... You do not have always. Now, there are so many different directions I could go here today. Uh, My mind went all over the place when I read this section and further on. But I've decided to try to focus in on a number of things that I think could help us in our own intimacy with the Lord. And please hear me. When I preach, I often will give you like three points or four points or five points, six points, whatever. They are not intended to be five easy steps that if you'll do these, you'll automatically be intimate. That's not what I'm talking about. I only give them numbers because to me, I like order. That's just kind of how my mind works. So I like to have things kind of plotted out like that. If you went down onto my desk, you would see lists that I make. That's how I work in life. So when I preach, I like to keep things orderly. So I don't mean if you will do these four things, three things, whatever it is, that all of a sudden you'll be magically intimate. I mean, these are things that if you will embrace them in your lives, I believe they might, in fact, help you to understand something more of the intimacy that God wants and provides for you personally. Now, number one, I want to give you the first one, and I'm just going to kind of work my way through this fast. Number one, learn to just sit at his feet and be still. Learn to just sit at his feet and be still. 
Notice the positions and the activity of this family. Martha, what, what was Martha doing again? Serving. I told you to keep that in mind. Martha was serving. Where was Lazarus? Sitting at the table. Where was Mary? She was at his feet. We don't know whether she was kneeling or sitting from this passage. We will from another passage we'll look at in a moment. But here are the family members. Martha's serving. Mary is either sitting or kneeling. And Lazarus is sitting at the table eating. Many preachers, many commentaries even, contrast two things in this passage. They contrast Martha serving with Mary sitting. And the implication is this. Sitting is good, serving is bad. And I want to say to you, that misses the whole point. You show me one place in the Bible where Jesus says serving is bad. He is the one who said, the Son of Man doesn't come to be served, but to serve. And to lay his life down as a ransom for many. So it's not that serving is bad. It's what is the situation calling for in that moment. What does God say would be the best thing for that moment? Now, with your fingers still in John, turn over to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10. Luke 10. This is the companion passage to what we've already read. But it kind of fleshes it out a little bit more. I think it will help us as we move forward. John 10, 38, if you'd follow along. Now, it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. So there, Luke clarifies that Mary was sitting at his feet. Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? By the way, have you ever done that? Have you ever complained to the Lord? Have you ever in your prayers complained about something that's going on in your life to Jesus? Lord, don't you care that I'm having to deal with this? Don't you care that they said that about me? Don't you care that they did that to me? That's what Martha's doing. She's just like us. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Doesn't that sound like one of your kids? Tell her. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. And can I just say that as a parent, whenever you, as a kid, have your parents say your name like that two in a row, you know you're in trouble. Just kind of keep that in your mind. Martha, Martha. I don't really think she was in trouble. I don't even think Jesus was being denigrating. I think he was speaking out of compassion and love for her. Because the scripture is clear that Jesus loved this family. It says that specifically. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary. And Lazarus. Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. One thing is needed. One thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken from her. The issue here in Luke 10, as in John 12, was not that Martha served. Martha was apparently the oldest in the household. Every time they're mentioned, Martha's name comes first. And in Jewish culture, it was very important that the eldest be referenced first. So Martha was the oldest, and Martha apparently had some means because it says she invited Jesus into her house. So Mary and Lazarus probably lived with their older sister. Maybe mom and dad had passed away. Maybe mom and dad had given it to Martha, which would have been very unusual in their culture. They would have always given it to a son. But Martha had a house. It was her house and she was the oldest. And because it was her house, she obviously felt some responsibility, some maternal responsibility, some hospitality responsibility to make sure that everything was just so in her house when she had a guest there. And she wanted everything to be perfect. She wanted everybody to be taken care of and comfortable. So her service was somewhat born out of a gift of hospitality. And that's not a bad thing. That's not bad. 
When somebody's like that, a lot of times we want to say, oh, you, you, you're just immature. If you were like me, you would always sit at the... That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, Martha, you're bad. He's saying, in this moment, as much as service is good, maybe there's a better thing right now. And maybe we could focus on that for right now and then later on go back to our service. But most people contrast her service with Mary sitting and say service is bad, and that's just not true. In fact, if you were to look at these sentences, I believe that what's being contrasted is not service and sitting. I think what's being contrasted as a bad thing is the word distracted. Martha was distracted with many things. She had a lot of things on her mind. In fact, if you add in what Jesus said, you're worried and troubled about many things. I think that's the contrast point. He's saying, here is Jesus. Now, I, I, I don't know if you think about this, but I think about what is people's motives and what they do. Martha clearly had a motivation for hospitality, but this portion makes it clear she has other motives as well. She wanted to make sure that her sense of worth and value was accomplished by everything being perfect. And I want you to think about that, even for your life. How much of what you do is motivated out of genuine love and care, out of love for God and love for people, and how much of it is motivated out of how you look, how people will think about you? How much of it is motivated by shame-based stuff? By fear that things won't be perfect and they will think ill of me. Think about it. She had Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of Israel in her home. And she's more concerned with making sure that the fork is on the left side of the plate and the knife is on the right. And that everything is just so. She was more concerned with the placemats matching the napkins. She was more concerned with the pillows on the couch being coordinated just perfectly. She was more concerned with the bathroom having matching towels that everybody in the family knew you never touch those. I grew up in a, I, I would think, a fairly poor house. Uh, we had a small farm. We didn't have a lot of money. We had a lot of kids. Um, so we did have a lot of one thing, people. Um, but in our living room, and I don't know if this was the way it was for you, growing up in our living room, in our house, we had, we'd walk in the door into our dining room. Some of you were at that house before. You walked into the door and there was the dining room. And to the right was the kitchen. 90% of our time was spent in the kitchen. We had our own table in there. We ate at the table there. But when we would have guests, we would also have the dining room table, which was a bigger table. The living room, and this is not an exaggeration, the living room we weren't allowed to use. We weren't allowed to go in the living room. If you went in the living room, you got spanked. You got in trouble. We weren't allowed to go in the living room. The living room was kept for guests. And so when guests finally came, and I can still remember, I can remember to this day, we invited my pastor and his wife over to our house for Thanksgiving dinner. So mom made this big spread. Glenn and Joyce and their kids were there. When we got done with dinner, Glenn, without being told he could do it, got up and went into the living room, turned the TV on. And the TV wasn't usually in the living room. Dad had just put it in the living room. Turned the TV on to a baseball game, and he laid down on our couch with his shoes on. He did. And I can still remember as a kid thinking, uh-oh, this is not good. Dad is going to blow up and hit Glenn. But Dad just went in and laid on the floor like everything was normal. That's Martha. 
Martha had to have everything perfect. You know, the silverware matching, the placement and the napkins matching, the couches on the... I mean, she didn't want the couches just... She didn't want the pillows on the couch just to kind of lay on the couch. They had to be tucked in there at an angle. And, you know, you had to angle it so it was aesthetically pleasing. And you know those towels? With, how, many of you have, how many of you guys have in your house soap that has, like, uh, flowers on it and stuff like that? You know, the soap that nobody can use? What's the point of it then? Get some dove or lava or something in there. Something that's usable. But that's Martha. Martha had Jesus in her house and she didn't care. Here's what my point is. I think Martha was far more concerned with the impression she makes than in her guest. And I got to tell you, sometimes I think on Sunday mornings we're the same way. We're more concerned with the impression we'll make on people than we are with Jesus being in the house. We want the service to be just so. Um, we want an opening prayer so that we know it's time to start. We want worship. We want good worship. We want lively worship. We want intimate worship. But we want it only to be so long and then it better stop. And after worship, we better have some announcements because nobody reads the bulletin anyway, so tell us what's going on. And then after that, we'll do the offering and we'll throw in our dollar or two. And then we'll have a sermon. And the sermon better be good. It better be engaging. It better be a little funny, but also a little serious. It better be impactful, but it better not be more than 10 or 15 minutes or else you're in trouble. And God forbid that anybody should upset our apple cart of our order of service, even God himself. And you think it's not this way? Um, Years ago, some of you might even remember this. If you remember this, you tell me by raising your hands. Years ago, I decided on a Saturday, I wanted to preach a sermon about God upsetting the apple cart. You don't even know what I'm saying yet, Ben. <laughs> I took all of our pews. Our pews were heavy pews. I mean, we're talking about when you were younger, maybe two guys pick it up. As you got older, we need six guys. We would pick up those pews. We had all those pews that used to be in here. We turned them and faced the south wall. And people came in, they were thrown so off kilter, they're like, they don't know where to go, what to do. It was, it was a lot of work, they were so heavy, but they came in and they just kind of stood there for a minute. What, I don't even know where my seat is anymore. I had one dear sister, dear friend in the Lord. She came in, service got done, I had preached what I wanted to about God upsetting up car. I think it was about uh, God coming in and to overturning the money changers tables and the temple, things like that. She came to me the after service and said, um, are you going to put these pews back? <laughs> I said, I don't know. Why? Just because I'm not coming back until you do. <laughs> now, I got it. Let me give this preface, or my, or not a preface. What would be afterwards? Huh? No, not a caveat's a warning. Uh, what comes after? Whatever that word is. Suffix. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Let me give this as a clarifying point. Come on, I expected you guys to help me with words. Postscript. Okay, thank you, David. After she said it, the truth is, she didn't mean it. She would have still come because this was her church. She loved God and she loved the people here. But in the moment, because things didn't go the way they always went, she was upset. And the truth is, we do the same thing. Um... What I want you to do is, in, in a moment, I want you just to close your eyes for just a moment. And I want you to think. Okay, so go ahead. Close your eyes for just a moment. Why do we even come here? Why are you here? Why do we do what we do? And I want you just to think about it for a second and come up with an answer. Why are you here? And why do we do what we do? Okay, you can open your eyes. I hope you've come up with some answers. Because my suspicion is, many of us would say we come for fellowship, encouragement with one another. And we do want fellowship, right? We want to be able to be with one another, see one another. I miss seeing you guys. I missed our church. We went to church while we were away, but it's not like this church at all. I think... Part of what we do is we want guests to feel welcomed and comfortable and understand what's going on, so we help them with that when they come in. Um, 
We take up an offering because we believe God wants us to finance things around this area and around the world. Wants us to be a part of that. We also love His Word. So we want to be able to hear His Word. We engage with God in His Word. So we want a sermon. But I want to suggest to you something. I don't know what the answer was in your mind. But I want to suggest to you this. All of that which we do and all of our reasons are encapsulated in this idea. We come here on a Sunday morning or any other time that we gather and we do what we do in order to help to facilitate each person encountering God himself. If you've come to church and you haven't met God, it has not been what we have intended or wanted. I want every person to encounter God when we gather. So, when he shows up, which he does at times, sometimes we're just aware of his presence and it's a sweet presence. Other times it's more powerful and we're undone and we just don't want to go on. Why is it when he shows up that we get all upset if we don't keep going with our order of service? I've had people, I've been here now for 25 years. Over 25 years. And I've had people come up to me on a service in which it was so clear to me and so many others that God was in the house and we just stop everything we're doing. Forget the sermon. And they said, but I come in order to hear a sermon. It was a wasted time. I want to say to you, what I have to say has nothing compared to what he wants to say. So as much as I feel like I am preaching God's word and what he would like me to preach, I sure hope so. It doesn't hold a candle to when he shows up. Because when he shows up, I think we ought to stop everything else we're doing and sit at his feet to give him time to say whatever he wants to us individually. Now, when that happens, is it likely that some people aren't as aware of his presence as others? Yeah. But that doesn't mean we allow that to control us any more than Mary allowed Martha to control her. It means we stop what we're doing and we say, this is why we came in the first place. So let's just park here for a while. Um, Karen and I went on vacation to Florida, to the West Coast. That's where we were, by the way, around the Tampa area. I have to tell you, I haven't been all over the world. I have been around a little bit. But I think the West Coast of Florida has some of the most beautiful sunsets I've ever seen in my whole life. And so, when we were there, though we were going for rest and refreshment, we wanted to get easy. We didn't want to be encumbered with saying, we got to do anything. Part of what we did, as much as we could, almost every night, is we went and found a different place to look at a sunset. Because that's why we came. We wanted to behold the glory of God in His creation. We loved the sunsets from when we were there before. So, when you come to church, don't miss the main point. And the main point is Jesus. It's Jesus. Keep that in your mind. When you come here on a Sunday morning, it's Jesus. Now, I heard about a couple who used to attend church regularly, and one Sunday the wife became sick, and so her husband went without her. And when he came home from church, she said to him, was sister so-and-so there? And he goes, yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I remember saying hi to her. And so the wife said, well, what was she wearing? He says, I don't, I don't know. She says, okay. And was... Um, Brother so-and-so and, -so and sister so-and-so there? He said, yeah, actually I talked to them as I was leaving church this morning before I came home. He says, well, what was she wearing? And he looked at her and he says, I don't know. She goes, well, then why do you go to church at all if you don't get anything out of it? Well, I got to tell you, I think sometimes that's how we go to church. We go to church to kind of, well, let's see. Instead of, is Jesus there? Why do you come? Now, I don't do this often, but I would like to get up on my soapbox for just a moment. This is a petty thing, perhaps, but it's my thing. We come on a Sunday morning to encounter God, to meet with God. Whether it be Josh or Pastor John or whomever, they start the services, can we all come together? We're going to open in prayer. The doors are open. People are standing in the door. People are standing around the church and you're still talking. We start the first song and you're still talking. You're not just, 
I come to a time to preach God's word. This world is going to dissolve. You understand that. It's going to roll up like a scroll and go. But he says not one word will ever depart. It's going to always be there. I open God's word to read it and you're too busy talking. Is that really how you feel about things? When you do that, you make it clear that you don't come to encounter God. You come just to talk to somebody. Okay, I'll get back off of this now. All right, I'm done. One of the things that I think happens is that when we come to encounter God, the enemy is going to come in equally and try to distract us just like Martha. Isn't it true that you, you're in the middle of worship, hands raised, eyes closed, and all of a sudden you think, oh my word, and you remember something. I forgot to turn the oven on for lunch today. Or, oh my word, I forgot. The bills are playing and I should have put the DVR on. <sighs> so many things the enemy wants to bring to bring distraction to us. Are those things important? Maybe. Are they more important than encountering God? No, they're not. I'll just answer for you if you can't. No, they're not. You want to talk with somebody. I think that's a laudable thing. You want to greet somebody. I mean, I stand in the back and I'll shake their hand. But I mean, it's like one second you shake their hand. Glad you're here. You smile at them. Good, glad to see you. Let's go back to worship. Invariably, I've watched this Sunday after Sunday. As I stand back there and I'm worshiping God, I watch somebody come in and invariably... They're going to go down, and somebody's got their eyes closed, hands raised. They're pressing into God, and somebody's got to tap them on the shoulder and talk to them. Because what you have to say in that moment is so important, and you know in your heart of hearts that if I don't say it right now, I won't remember it later. So I would rather interrupt their worship than forget what I had to say that was so important. We come to encounter the living God. Every one of us, myself included, we need to train ourselves to. Um, slow down just a little bit and press into the Lord. There are many times during our worship service when even in the singing of the songs, it feels almost frantic at times. And I stop even singing. And I just close my eyes and I press into the Lord. I say, Lord, I'm hearing the words and my heart agrees with the words, but I want my soul to meet you. We need to press into the Lord. So the first point very simply was slow down. Sit at his feet a little bit. Number two, place a value on intimacy in worship. How important, how valuable is time with God for you? Is it important enough for you to get up a little earlier to meet with God? Is it important enough for you to stay up a little later to meet with God? Think about it. How important is it for you to get here in this setting where corporately we encounter God, and corporately there is something different. When we come together, there is an exponential thing that happens that's greater than when I'm alone. I meet with God alone, but I also love to meet with God together with you. And yet, we stroll into church unprepared, half awake, half baked, or we come in late, scurrying in, forgot to do things, and we have to do it right now. We come in and we stand at the door drinking our energy drink and eating our Timbits because we didn't get it earlier. How important is it for you to make sure that the time that is set aside to encounter God corporately is kept for that? I've watched people, and I have an advantage over some of you. I stand up here and preach and I look that way. You look this way usually. I've watched people literally get up, get out of their chair, go to the back door, open the door, hold the door open, reach over onto a shelf, and get their monster drink and drink a drink, put it back down and come back down and sit down. Because you couldn't wait another 15, 20 minutes. How valuable is your time of meeting with God? I know for some of you here today, you feel like, okay, this is, You've gone from preaching to meddling and this isn't good. Maybe. Could be. 
But I think sometimes we have to take grip of our life patterns. This isn't something that happens once in every great while, because that always happens to everybody. Somebody, I don't care who you are, you're going to have something come up once in a while. Whether it's something you have to say right now, because you know it's integral for the service, or what's going on there, or maybe something did happen, and you came scurrying in late. You didn't like to, but you did. But for some people, it's their life pattern. And when you come in late, it tells us something about how important it is to you. It says something to yourself and something to God. I have a friend who is a pastor in Canandaigua, New York, Chris Wood. And uh, he told me very recently, in fact, it was a couple of Thursdays ago uh, at a regional gathering. He told me about a time in which President Bush made a special visit to Canandaigua. And everybody knew what his route was going to be. And so if you wanted to see President Bush, you had to get along that route well ahead of time if you're even going to be able to see him through the crowd. So people knew he was going to be at this point, at this time, and this point, at this time, and they would gather early. And then there were a few select people who got to meet President Bush personally and shake his hand. And they knew that they were to meet with him at 9.38. Exactly. He was one of them. So you're going to have a private meeting with President W. You're going to shake his hand and you have to be there at 9.38. But then, all of the people who are in charge say, but you have to be here at 9.15 because we have to make sure that you're all in order. And he knows who your names are. He's got a list of your names. Somebody's behind him whispering to him through his earpiece and saying, this is who it is, so he can greet you by name. So if you're not here at 9.15, you're out of the line. Do you know what time people got there? 8 o'clock. He said, I showed up at 8 o'clock thinking, I'm not going to be late. He said, everybody else was there already. Why? Because you're going to meet the President of the United States. And you don't just show up dressed any old way and you don't show up late. Well, you're meeting the King of all kings and the President of all presidents. And you just kind of lollygagging. Where's John? Is that the word lolly? I think you kept using that word down in Haiti. What is it? Tra-la-la. You tra-la-la in here. Just trying to remember that. It's the same in our marriage. If you want your marriage to have intimacy, you have to value it. You have to put time and energy. You have to make place. You have to make time for it. And you have to take that time for it. It's the same with our worship of God, our intimacy with God. And what I did really quickly is I believe in order to have true intimacy, you have to invest into it. So I took the word invest and made it an acrostic and I put it up on the wall for you. I have invest is for intimacy and is necessitates. Intimacy necessitates V, value, plus E, energy, plus S, sacrifice, and finally, trust. So intimacy necessitates value, energy, sacrifice, and trust. All of that's a part of us valuing our relationship with God. Number three, stop worrying about what others think. Regardless of what's your background, maybe your background like mine was more traditional. Maybe you're here and you're from a Catholic background or a Methodist background or like me from a Baptist background. Regardless of what your background is, stop worrying about what other people are thinking of you in your worship. This is between you and God. Not them and you and God. This is you and God. The question isn't, do they look at your worship and smile because they like your worship? The question is, does God look at your worship and smile? Does God love your worship? Or is your worship more about how you look to others around you? I've watched people, I, I know this is funny, but I've probably done it too, I don't know. Probably have. Let's just say I have, all right? You got your hands raised and all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, how's this looking? And you look around, you look at... Uh, no, I should. No. Oh, you know what really looks good is when people do this. Oh, that's a picture. They should get it from the back and they should kind of shadow it. And you're thinking about all of that in your worship. It's not about what you look like. It's about who you're meeting with. Stop worrying about what others think. Um, when I first started attending uh, the Baptist church up in Naples 
uh, it was a lot different than it was by the end. Uh, at the very beginning, people would raise their hands. We'd be in the service, and I'd watch people raise their hands, but it just seemed kind of odd to me. It didn't seem like a masculine thing. I could understand emotional girls raising their hands, but guys didn't do that. That, just, that wasn't a guy thing. But I had a guy in that church. His name was uh, Bernie Merritt. He was the sheriff of Ontario County. He was a big guy, and I don't mean heavy, I mean big. His shoulders were, you know, his shoulders were like six foot wide or something like that. I mean, he was a big guy. He was also into bodybuilding. He had um, MS when he was young. And so what he started to do was he started as a young kid fighting MS by working out with weights. He made his own weights. He took five-gallon buckets, filled it with cement with a crowbar, and he used that to do his curls. This guy had muscles that were bigger than my both legs. I mean, he was huge. He also uh, was just uh, as uh, much a man's man as you could imagine. I mean, he was all into fishing and trapping and hunting. Uh, everything that he ate, they grew on their farm or they shot on their farm. And I can still remember him inviting us to their house for the first time, he had a log cabin in which he had cut down his own trees, stripped them, formed them, and made his own without any kind of equipment. He used pulleys and stuff to help pull everything up. He did it all himself. A beautiful log cabin. But I can remember one Sunday as a young teenager, thinking again that some of this stuff was unseemly for guys, okay for girls, but not for guys. I can remember looking over and there was Bernie Merritt with his hand raised. And I don't mean one hand raised because that could have been him saying, call to order or I have a question or something. But I saw him with both hands raised, eyes closed, singing loudly to God. And all of a sudden I realized real men worship God. Real men don't care what other people think of them. Real men will lift their hands and worship to the one who deserves all worship. Stop worrying about what people think about you. Um, when Peter, at the very end before Christ was ascended, he was looking around and he looked at John and he said to Jesus, what about John? And Jesus says to him something that I think is good for all of us. He basically, and this is a paraphrase, but he basically says, mind your own business. You worry about yourself. And I think that's the kind of thing he says to me. And he says to you, that we need to focus on our worship of God, not everybody else's. Let people alone. Let your spouse alone. Let your spouse, maybe you even had a bad day. Let your spouse worship God because how else are they going to change unless they encounter God? Let me give you this caveat. Uh, kind of a balancing point. When I stand up here and preach, I recognize that there's a broad spectrum. I would say, and I'm guessing, 90% of the people think what I have to say is okay. But there's always 5% who think I didn't go far enough. Should have been more severe, more hard. And then there's the other 5% who said you went too far. Should have stopped. It was harsh. It was mean. It was hard. So I know that. Let me give you an example. Um, some months back, I preached a message on the ethics of work in the kingdom of God. And in this same church, there were likely a spouse sitting there hearing me telling people that you need to work. If you don't work, you don't eat. And they're thinking, my spouse is a workaholic. They're never home. Would you please shut up? You've gone too far. But in the same service, there's probably some guy who hasn't worked a lick in his life and he sends his wife off to work every day in order to pay for his creature comforts. So you have a broad spectrum. Well, in worship, you have the same kind of thing. 90% of you need to hear what I say and say, you need to go for it big time. Go for it big time. The other percentage of you, you need to be a little careful cartwheels across the front of the church aren't necessarily a good expression of worship. It might make a spectacle of yourselves, but it might not be real worship. It might be drawing attention to yourself, but it might not be real worship. When you're standing next to people in your row and you want to spread your arms and twirl in worship, that might be a good thing, but move away from somebody so that they don't get hit in the face. Flags are fine. 
But parents, be careful. A poked out eye isn't good worship. Even when Jesus said, if you're IFN, they pluck it out. I don't think he meant for you to do it. So for most of us, we need to hear what I say, which is go for it big time. But for a few of us, balance it just a little bit. You're already out there okay. Just kind of hold steady. Okay? Number four. Declare your complete dependence on God. John 12, 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Did you know that the word Hosanna only occurs here in all the Bible? In the passages that deal with the triumphal entry. That's in Matthew 28, Mark 11, and here in John 12. Only in the triumphal entry does the word Hosanna actually occur. And contrary to popular belief, Hosanna does not mean hallelujah or praise the Lord. Hosanna actually comes from two Greek words. The first is hoshia, which means save, and ana, which means now. So Hosanna literally means save now. So they were saying to the Messiah, save us now, God. We don't have any hope without you. We're dependent upon you to save us comes out of Psalm 118.25, where they didn't put these two words together, but it's the same theme. The psalmist says this, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. So when they cried out Hosanna, they were saying, God, we desperately need you. And that's what worship is about. Worship is about saying, God, I desperately need you. Jesus came riding in on a colt of a donkey. And in their time period, if a conquering hero came into the city, he came riding in on a horse's stallion. But if he came in peace, he rode on a colt. Jesus here came riding on a colt. Do you know what he's going to come riding on at the end of all time? The scripture says he's coming in on a charger. He's coming in as a conquering king once again. Worship and intimacy begins with a humble heart before God, knowing that without Him coming and meeting with us, it's not going to get any better than this. It's, um, we had a brother here several years ago who, preaching out of Romans chapter 12, took his hands like this and he said, God, if you don't meet with me, it's not going to get any better. I've tried to change. I've tried hard. And I've failed again and again. But God, if you meet with me, one moment with you can change everything everything. And that's what our worship is about. Here's God's promise to you, and I'm drawing to a close here. If you will touch him, he will touch you. That's his promise. He says, if you will draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Now, when I was a kid, we used to play a game. Maybe some of you guys played it, a game called tag. You guys, How many of you guys play tag? Okay. In tag, there was always somebody who was it. The it had to catch somebody else and touch them. And when they touched them, that person became it. Now, when I played it, though, I, I, was, I had older cousins. They were stronger, faster than me. And you would, you would run and run and run. And finally, you would touch one of them and say, you're it. And before you could take a breath and move, they would turn and touch you and say, touchback. And so we made rules called no touchback. Just to kind of save ourselves. Well, here's my point. God doesn't believe in no touchbacks. God loves touchbacks. If you will touch God, he will touch you. That's his promise to you. So when someone leaves a service like today and says, I didn't get anything out of it, my question is, did you touch God? Because if you touch God, and that's your responsibility, not mine, not the worship team, that's yours. If you touch God, God promises to touch you back. Maybe things don't go well. Maybe you noticed we had problems with the uh, keyboard today. Don't even know what was going on. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you had no instrumentation. You can still worship God. 
So don't be blaming anybody else around you. Don't be looking at them. Let them alone. You worship God. And that alone will create it. Two people, Mary and Martha, in the same room with God, had a completely different experience. Think about it. Mary sat at his feet and worshipped him. Martha was distracted. And I suspect the same thing happened here today. Some of you met with God. Some of you were so distracted you didn't have time to meet with God. You worried about too many things, too many other things. Do we have stuff on our mind and heart? Absolutely. But then we bring that to God and say, God, you need to help me. I want to give you your due. But my mind is just full of stuff that's going on in my life, hard stuff. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage. Maybe you're struggling with your kids, your finances. I don't know. Maybe your job is just, just driving you nuts. You say, God, the only thing I know is what Mary did. To take all those things that weigh upon me, that are important to me, and I'm going to pour them out at your feet. That's what worship is about. That's what creates intimacy. We can't make God do anything. We can't cause God to do anything except this. He says, if you will draw near to me, I promise, I guarantee you, I will draw near to you. That's his promise. So when we gather together on Sunday mornings like this, corporately, I want to encourage you. Make your number one aim to encounter God, to meet with God. That's what we want as a people. So, if that's your heart, your heart is, okay, that's what I want. I know I need to come to a place of greater intimacy with God where stuff that has been like barnacles on my life are scraped off in His presence. Where baggage that I've carried around for too long can be set aside finally. If you're here today and you say, I know I need to encounter the living God in a greater and greater way. I need Him to touch me. And I'm going to go after Him. That's my commitment. I'm going to go after God. I don't care what other people think. I'm going after God. If that's your heart, I'm going to ask you just to stand right where you are and say, that's me. That's what I want. Don't worry about whether your neighbor does, your spouse does, your boyfriend, girlfriend. I don't care. This is if you are doing this. Don't, don't do it just because I said it. Don't do it just because others are standing. You say, if you're standing, you're making a commitment to the Lord saying, God, I'm going after you. We hear about the hound of heaven being the Holy Spirit. But we can hound heaven itself. We can say, God, I'm not letting you out. I'm going after you. I'm not. We can be like Jacob. When God himself says, let me go, we can be like Jacob saying, I'm not going to let you go until you touch me. That's our heart. Would you bow your heads? Father, as a church, one of the um, core values we have that we carry as part of our DNA is we are a people desperate for your presence. We want all out revival, encounters with you. We want to be transformed. We don't want behavioral modification. We don't want to have to keep biting our tongue. We want our tongue to be changed. We want our mindsets to be changed. And we know with all of our hard work, it hasn't happened. It can only happen when we meet with you. So Lord, I'm asking you to save us now. Save us now, O Lord, we pray. Come in and meet with us that we, O oh God, would be changed forever. And in our standing, Father, we make a commitment. We're going to go after you. We're not going to rely upon others. We're not going to blame others. We're going after you ourselves. This is between you and me, Jesus. Am I grateful for others' encouragement here that incites me? Yes. But Lord, in the end, whether they do or not, I'm going after you. I'm not going to allow life situations to keep me from that. I'm no longer going to come in here all depressed and discouraged because life is hard. I'm going to say, Lord, that's what's inside of me, but I lay it at your feet. Because it won't change unless you change it. So Lord, in our standing, we've made a commitment here today. Lord, you see every person who's here. You see their stance. They're standing saying, they are making you 
the number one priority. Intimacy with you. True love relationship with the one true and living God. That's what we're about. See our hearts that we're standing, that we're giving ourselves fully to you. Not just today, but every single day. And especially as we gather together, that we will give ourselves afresh to you. Now, Lord, let this be carried over into this afternoon, over lunch. Let this be carried over to tomorrow in our workplace that we will be worshipers of the living God in word and in deed. We pray it, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Good. God bless you.